Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President Stacy Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacy's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Hal Sutton, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And they're offering 10% off their brand-new range of training aids. I visited their booth and loved their breaking ball putting mat, which allows you to practice breaking putts at home on a traditional putting mat. I've got mine right here in my studio. They've just launched their own golf glove, and they're offering Next on the Tee listeners 10% off the whole range. Use code CHRIS10 for 10% off. That offer expires March 31st of this year. Check out their great array of training aids online at meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabric. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. All right, now back and next on the tee with me is PGA Tour legend Hal Sutton. Hal's a great follow on Twitter, at Hal Sutton Golf. He's got a podcast of his own. It's called Be the Right Club Today. You can watch and subscribe to that also on YouTube. It's also available just about everywhere you get your podcast. And for those of you who haven't joined me before when Hal's been a part of the show, and you may not remember what a great career that Hal had, let me give you a quick reminder of what should be a World Golf Hall of Fame resume. He was named the 1980 College Player of the Year, won 14 times during that that college career at Centenary. He was a two-time All-American and led Centenary to the NCAA tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. Like Rob mentioned in the last segment, won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship, 
Hal turned pro in 81, got his first win on tour in 82 at the World Disney World Classic. And that year, he was named the PGA Tours Rookie of the Year. 83, he was named the PGA Player of the Year because he won the Players' Championship and then the PGA Championship. And how about this? He beat Jack Nicklaus by a stroke in 83 at the PGA. And then later on in his career, he beat Tiger by a stroke at the 2000 Players' Championship. In 98, he won the Tour Championship here in Atlanta, captained the 2004 U.S. Ryder Cup team, and he backed up his 14 college wins with 14 more on the PGA Tour. Finished second 18 times, 135 top 10s, and 239 top 25s. That's why I say he should be in the World Golf Hall of Fame, and it's a thrill to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. I have so to how, apologize. I'm fighting a little bit of an allergy here, but I'll I'll do my best here. I appreciate you taping an aspirin to it and playing anyway. Thank you. <laughs> so, Hal, you might have heard Rob Strano in the, at the end of the last segment. He followed you at Centenary. Talk to me about your days at Centenary. What do you remember about being a player there? Well, Floyd Horgan was the coach uh, my junior and senior year. Uh, we worked hard. We were probably one player shy from having a chance to win the NCAAs. We ended up finishing ninth my senior year. But, you know, we had a bunch of great guys on the team. We just we couldn't get that fourth score to be low enough. So uh, a lot of interesting personalities on the golf team. Loved those days. We worked really hard. It was fun. College is fun. It's been so long ago, Chris, I had a hard time remembering. How <laughs> <laughs> so update us on what's going on now. I know you, you've been a part of a lot of projects there in Houston. How are things going? Things are good. Uh, the Academy is doing well. We, we made some changes at the Academy, but it's doing great. Jamie Fraser's running it for me and uh, Jamie Marshall's also teaching there. And, uh, and then I'm I'm there once a week, maybe sometimes twice a week, and doing a little teaching. But I'm actually building a golf course, uh, Darmore Club, which is west of Houston. Uh, having a lot of fun doing that. It's a tribute to C.B. McDonald and Seth Rainer. We're using the templates that they created uh, to build a golf course and beautiful piece of land that will look very Scottish. And uh, fun doing that. All right. Is that something you want to start doing a lot more of? Uh, who knows? You know, I'm pretty uh, serious about it. I'm out there every day. Most architects, you know, if they make it five or six times to a project, that's a lot. But I take it very seriously. I want to make sure that it's good. So I'm there every day. Hard to do a lot of projects like that. How here we are on the heels of this year's Players' Championship. You've got some great memories from playing there, having won it twice. And is is that a special week every year when that comes around? Does that put a smile on your face when, when it's Players' Championship week? I always enjoy watching it. It's a, it's a great venue for a great championship. Uh, Scotty Scheffler played tremendous. Uh, I'm always amazed at his short game. He might have the best short game we've ever seen. Uh, but, you know, I, this year, a little bit different than ever before, you know, with the 
this LIV thing going on. And uh, uh, I feel bad for Scotty because, you know, every other year we'd say that the TPC always had the best field in golf. Uh, this year it felt like it didn't quite get there just because some of those guys were missing. And, uh, you know, it's by their own choice. Uh, I hate that it's divided golf like it has. I kind of, I don't know enough about it to even talk about it anymore. Did Did you miss having those players out there? I mean, I was talking to to some friends and, and, and on another show about the field and, and watching the players championship. And, you know, I, I never thought to myself, gee, I sure wish Brooks Kepka was out there. Boy, I sure do miss DJ playing in this event. Did, did you find yourself wishing that those guys were out there? Well, I, you know, I did for Scotty Scheffler and let me tell you why he played so magnificently and for him to have, he probably would have beaten every one of the rest of them, you know, but, it would have been nice for them to have been in the field so he could say he did. And uh, there will always be that, uh, well, not everybody was there. And he doesn't deserve that because he played, like I said, unbelievable. Uh, you know, I hate that it's gone the direction it's gone. I mean, uh, the tour was, uh, I was always so proud to say I was part of the tour because, you know, it was the best field in golf in terms of where you could go play and play against the best players in the world. And charity was a big driver. And, you know, I've yet to hear anybody talk about charity from the uh, LIV. It's mostly their own charity, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of why everybody's bolted, you know, was because of all the money. And, right. you know, I played because I wanted to beat people, you know, I didn't, I mean, obviously we had to get paid, but we were paid well. I mean, it doesn't seem well today, but uh, at the time we were getting paid very well. So, Hal, I had John Mahaffey on the show last week. He won the players in 1986. He talked about not only the difficulty of standing on the 17th tee on Sunday trying to win that golf tournament, but on the 18th tee as well. We saw the water swallow a lot of golf balls this past weekend. And John said, he used to like to hit a little cut, but there was no way he was standing on the 18th tee, taking the ball out over the water, hoping it was going to cut back over land. So uh, just curious, you know, you obviously had to do that twice. You went to the 18th tee with a one stroke lead and pulled it off. What's it like standing on that 18th tee, trying to finish off that golf tournament? Well, 18 is a really tough driving hole. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, the first time I won there, uh, I hit driver kind of down the water's edge with a fade that went through the fairway, actually, uh, into the right trees, uh, ended up making bogey on the hole, but still was able to prevail. Uh, the second time against tiger, uh, he had the tee, drove it down there perfectly because he had the Eagle 16. And, uh, you know, I, he hit his stinger two iron and there was no way I could, I couldn't hit it past that with my three wood. So I had to drive it because I wanted the last shot into the green. And I had hit three wood all three days before that, but just made up my mind. It's now or never, you know, I, this is your chance to beat tiger. So let's not back down. 
And uh, at that point, you know, I wasn't thinking about how nervous I was. I was thinking about how I was going to do that. And uh, I felt good all week. So I wasn't going to not feel good on the 72nd hole. <laughs> yeah. And when you won there the first time you mentioned, and you did it in 83, you were four strokes behind my next guest, John Cook, going into the final round. And when I look back over the final round scores that year, there were a lot of high ones. In 70, uh, Seve shot 78. Craig Stadler shot 84. A lot of players between 77 and 80. You went out there and shot 69. John Mahaffey just happened to be the only player to do a little bit better that day. He shot 67 in that final round. Was the wind up, and did that give the Texans uh, an advantage to, to come from behind and make your move? The wind was up that day. Uh, and, I, you know, I have to tell you, in 1983, the golf course was a lot harder than it is now. Uh, it, it had not matured at that point. The 16th green, instead of setting down low and being kind of mild in the green, it was an elevated green with the water right next to it. Much harder hole than it is now. Uh, and several other holes were that way too. But, you know, it was harder than they wanted it to be, so they softened it some. Uh, when Pete Dye first did it, it was uh, a mighty test. Rob Shrano earlier uh, this week sent me a picture of a kid's t-shirt that they were selling there at TPC Sawgrass. It has a picture of a golf ball inside of a crib with the phrase, be the right crib today. Have you seen those? <laughs> Rob sent me that same picture. Did he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just happy. I said something that everybody kind of hung on to, you know, I, it was, uh, never had been planned. It was just a moment of passion. I think I've told you this before, Chris. Uh, the ball was in the air. I knew I had the right club it was right at the flag. And the only thing that could change things would be a puff of wind. And that basically was what I meant. You know, don't, don't, uh, no gust come up or anything else because it's, it's done if we can, if, if it'll just do what it's supposed to do right now. And how we've got a great scenario going on on the PGA Tour, in my opinion, with Scotty Scheffler, John Robb, Rory McIlroy trading the world number one ranking. It seems like every week, I believe this is the best scenario for the PGA Tour because there's a lot of bandwagons to jump on. We've got three guys from three different countries that people can rally around versus having just one dominant player. Do you like the idea of having a dominant player? Or do you like the idea of what we're seeing now with with what I think golf magazine was saying, could we have a new big three in our hands? It's kind of interesting that you say that. Uh, I think everybody is in love with the thought of somebody up and coming and becoming a dominant player until they get that. I think everybody loves the, the, the competitiveness of, you know, several players being for number one, but then when they finally get the, uh, dominant player, maybe they're not as excited about it after they've got him. You know, everybody's trying to cut him down once he gets there. You know, it's amazing. Tiger, everybody's trying to cut him down. and We all owe him some money. He made us all money by being part of golf. <laughs> he brought so much money to the game is what I mean. And, you know, I was happy he was there, you know. How so the golf world is all abuzz 
today, right, over the USGA and the RNA saying they want to roll the golf ball back. I don't know. Your thoughts. What do you think about that idea? I think it's a great idea. Far too late. <laughs> I just think the golf ball's gotten out of hand. It's cost the consumer so much money. It's unbelievable. Changing golf courses and, you know, every golf course, uh, everybody that's a member of the golf course, they've had to lengthen their course. They've renovated and made some golf courses obsolete. Money has driven the game for a long time. And the manufacturers want to make all the money they can. and They've sold the world on how much further the new driver goes. If you read the fine print, it says you've got 110 miles an hour speed. <laughs> but, you know, it's the game is a lot more than just the distance you hit it. And it's turned into that, which is a little bit frustrating to me because John Cook, who's on next, we all worked on trying to hit the ball straight because that meant something. The straight ball doesn't mean as much as it used to mean. Now, you've also talked about how different playing on tour is than what the rest of us do in regards to mistakes. When we make a mistake at work, four or five people know about that mistake. No big deal. When you guys make a mistake, millions of people know about it. We saw it on TV. We read about it the next day in the paper. And nowadays, it's all over social media. Talk about the pressure that goes along with being out on tour. Well, today it's more than ever because of what you just said, social media. You know, guys, they can't make a mistake because everybody in the world will know about it. And, uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure with trying to make a living on the tour. And then when you add trying to please the world, in every aspect of your life, you know, I, I struggled with it, you know, and people labeled me, uh, more than I could do. And it got very frustrating because I wasn't living up to everybody's expectations. And, you know, I started buying horses and trying to become a cowboy instead of a golfer because I was trying to get away from it. And that was way back in the late eighties. And, you know, we didn't have social media and everything else. It was just what people said to you, basically, or what you read in the paper. Uh, now, if you pick up any social media platform, there's plenty of stuff on there to be frustrated about <laughs> if you're doing anything. How just a couple more before I let you go. And a few years after you beat Jack Nicholas in the 83 PGA, you went on and won his tournament, the Memorial. You did that in 1986, just a few weeks after Jack wins the 86 Masters. What was that week like for you? Well, it was always fun to go to the Memorial because Jack was very, very uh, high on presenting the nicest golf course we played and uh, the best experience in the locker room. Uh, you know, Jack was very serious about having the best tournament for, by a player. And, uh, you know, their practice facility was fantastic. Golf course was always in perfect shape. So I looked forward to going to the Memorial every year. And That year, I was really hitting the ball well. So, you know, I was looking forward to playing there and happened to get lucky and win. I always felt like, you know, if you're playing really well, you know, finishing in the top 10, you know when you're going to finish in the top 10, you're playing that well. But getting in the winner's circle, required some luck as well so 
I was fortunate there. Well, winning that, what's it like coming off the 18th? Because Jack played well that week too. He finished tied for fifth. You walk off the 18th green, a winner, you get to shake, uh, shake Jack Nicholas's hand and win his tournament. That's got to be a huge accomplishment. Well, he was my idol growing up. So, yeah, it was uh, uh, it was always fun to be in his presence because you felt like uh, you were in, in golf excellence's presence. And uh, everything he did, I tried to copy uh, the way he approached the ball from behind it. You know, I always thought, you know, my dad, we'd watch him play, and my dad, he would stand there and line it up. And my dad would look at him and he said, well, that's good enough for Jack Nicholas. That's good enough for Hal Sutton, don't you think? And he, You know, he was always promoting me, uh, following whatever he did. So, yeah, I admired Jack a lot. How, before I let you go, remind our listeners again, how can they stay up to date with all, all the great things you're doing about your academy? How can they follow you online and on social media as well? Well, Hal Sutton Golf Academy. Uh, we've got our own website. And then uh, I'm on Twitter most of the time. We're on Instagram at Hal Sutton Golf. And then uh, I don't know how else. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> I think that's I, I'm good. I'm moving around a lot, Chris, so hard to keep up with me. Hal, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always a huge thrill to get to spend some time with you. I hope we get that privilege again real soon. Thanks, Chris. I always enjoy visiting with you. Take care, Hal. All the best to you okay. and your family. Okay. Bye-bye. See you, Hal. That is the great Hal Sutton. And again, a guy who should be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. That resume, to me, is right on par with a lot of the folks that are already in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So I, I just, I, I shake my head Every time we get to this time of year and we're looking at the, the, the guys and, and gals that get inducted into the hall and, and Hal Sutton's name is somehow not there. I think that the hall is not complete without Hal Sutton, without Dave Stockton. I'm going to be tooting that horn for a lot of years. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacy Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacy's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. 
Camp Margaritaville RV Resort, where you can just breathe in and breathe out. <sighs> or move. There's biking, boating, arcade games, hiking, nearby golfing. Or fly through the new Fins Up Water Park. Thrills, chills, twists, and turns. This could be you. Camp Margaritaville at Lanier Islands. An easy one-hour drive from Atlanta. Book your stay today at Camp Margaritaville Lanier Islands.com.